partner with people who know the aspects of the business that you don't. Don't partner with another bartender, you know? If you're a front of the house creative person, partner with people who really know the financials, but learn the financials. Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chats. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today, I am speaking with Julie Rayner. Julie is one of America's most influential bar figures. Having set up legendary New York bars like the Flatiron Lounge in 2003 and Clover Club in 2008, and partnered with Audrey Saunders in 2005 to set up Pegu Club. We talk about Julie's early years as a bartender and the people that influenced her, then discuss how New York has developed as a centre of hospitality for the, over the past 20 to 30 years. Julie reflects on her position as a mentor to many up and coming female bartenders. And we talk about her role in the hit Netflix show, Drinks Masters. There's all of that and much more. Hope you enjoy it. All right, I'm here with Julie Rayner. Hey, Julie. Hi, Tristan. Great to have you on. Um, I'm looking forward to this. Before we get started, though, we're going to do your quickfire questions. And as usual, these questions are supposed to be answered with whatever comes to your head as quickly as possible and concisely as possible. Okay. This could be very dangerous. I know. <laughs> we could fall at the first hurdle here. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Question number one, mezcal or tequila? Mezcal. Question two, tell me something that only Hawaiian people do. Eat poi. <laughs> Question three, which cocktail is better? Clover Club or Opegu Club? Clover Club by Miles. <laughs> yeah. Question three. Four, sorry. <laughs> Recommend me a New York bar or restaurant that I probably haven't heard of and tell me why. Um, Chuko in Carroll Gardens. Uh, one of the most... I haven't heard of it. Yeah, it's uh, a pretty incredible uh, Mexican spot with some of the most authentic food I've had in New York City. I discovered not too long ago it's out in Gowanus, Brooklyn. You should go. Nice. What one cocktail can you absolutely nail every single time? And if we're honest with ourselves, nobody makes that drink as well as you do. A Clover Club. <laughs> oh, yeah, I like it. Uh, uh, next question. Favorite city to visit? Amsterdam. Yeah, good choice. Okay, next question. This is the penultimate one. How do you feel about substituting egg white in cocktails? I hate it. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> uh, that's why I asked it. And then the final question... When you open a bottle of champagne, do you do it discreetly or do you send the damn cork into orbit? Uh, it depends on the situation. <laughs> it does. You're right. I mean, I love, I love a big splash, but it has to be the right moment <laughs> and the right people. You've got to have the right company and the right environment for, you know, the, uh, the projectile version of that. Exactly. Don't you? Yes. Otherwise, you look like an idiot if you do it in front of a bunch of wine snobs, mm. you know. <laughs> Yeah. There's always like, I always hear crazy statistics about champagne cork injuries as well. And I don't know whether they're urban myths, but it's like, there's some mad statistics about hospital admissions. Oh, no. I was do, about to do a seminar once uh, at like Gugamuga in the, it was like Prospect Park. And it was like a brunch cocktail seminar. And one of the bartenders opened a bottle of champagne wasn't holding onto the, the cork and it hit me in the eye. And like my whole eye was swollen. Oh. And I was literally like three minutes before I went on to do this seminar. And I was just like, <laughs> yeah, I had it hit me like, you know, it was one of those like, oh I think my. it hit a little bit above my eye, but it like, you can go be blinded by it. Yeah. I think there are some crazy statistics because it, it's, Moving very fast, yeah. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much damage it could cause you beyond eye injury. Like, would it take a tooth out? Do you think? Probably would. If it was, if it was fired right, it probably would. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I there is some statistic as far as like what the force is behind it, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I'll tell you that my whole face, I was, it was swollen for like days. <laughs> so beware, beware. Um, goes back to that that quick fire question really and maybe we should be opening it's one of my many bar one of my many bar injuries yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well bar spoon is one of the more common ones right you hear <laughs> if, um 
people like kind of sticking like bar spoons jabbing them in the hand when they break or whatever they've been a bit sort of aggressive with the stirring maybe and obviously cracked glasses and things like that yeah what else have you had um well i one time i think the best one was giuseppe gonzalez when he was the head bartender at clover club he was yelling at a bar back to move faster and the bar back ran out of the bar was coming around into the back room of clover club and as i was coming up the stairs and he headbutted me right in between my eyes and broke my nose <laughs> like on a saturday night in the middle oh my of God. service <laughs> uh-huh it was a, yeah it was a hospital run and all i love the way this got traced back to giuseppe as well oh yeah i just saw him in vegas i hadn't seen him and i reminded him of that situation i was oh, like that's you? going in my memoir for sure <laughs> <laughs> and now on this podcast as well which is brilliant <laughs> So, um, look, we've broken the ice successfully. Um, obviously, we know each other, and you are a living legend of the bar industry, but there may be people listening to this podcast who are like, eh, I've heard the name Julie Rayner, um, but I'm not quite sure who she is or what she does. So can you give us the kind of um, the brief bio on like how you got into the industry and, and what you've done so far? Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I grew up in Hawaii, which is a very hospitality-driven city. Uh, and state. And so I started out cocktail waitressing in Waikiki and went to college and bartended in college and, you know, thought I'd get a real job. Uh, I moved to San Francisco and I was really bored and I realized that I really love bars and hospitality and I went right back to it. Um, and then eventually moved to New York City, uh, where, you know, I really, a lot of it was like right time, right place, but I've opened multiple bars here in New York City, including Flatiron Lounge, Pegu Club, uh, Clover Club, Lonnie Kai, Leenda, and my latest spot, Milady's. And that's about it. <laughs> They're very concise uh, for a long and successful career. You did say concise. <laughs> yeah, no, I did say, and I, I, and I, I'll take it, I'll take it. Um, how has the scene changed since you started, you moved to New York, started opening bars, and, you know, if you, if you wouldn't mind, um, some of the influence that those bars have had over the scene over the years, and I know you probably want to be humble about it, but they have obviously have been very influential bars, both in New York and internationally as well and across the States. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I moved to New York City in 97. Uh, and at that time in New York, it was still very much sour mix on the gun and no fresh ingredients behind the bar. It was roses, lime juice, and that was kind of it, you know. Um, but I was coming from San Francisco where fresh ingredients were more uh, the norm behind the bar and you could get fresh lime juice, you know, and and people sort of looking to classic cocktails and, and with an interest in the history of drinks. Um, and so I started managing a lounge in the West Village and kind of taking that, you know, what I was doing in San Francisco and started doing it in New York, um, you know, where I was making my own infusions and my own syrups and putting out menus. Uh, and at that time, it was very groundbreaking because New York City, again, wasn't really doing that just yet. So I found myself immediately, um, you know, like on the front page of the food section of the New York Times, uh, in New York Magazine, and then Dale uh, DeGroff walked in and Tony Abuganam came in and, and, you know, they were like, what are you doing in here, kid? You know? Um, uh, and and so I realized very early on that, you know, here this is in a city where everything has been done and there's competition for, you know, to sell hot dogs on whatever corner. Um, this is something that was an untapped market, you know, uh, and New Yorkers want the best of everything. They will travel to go to restaurants that are, you know, doing something interesting and cool. Uh, and I found out quickly that they would also travel for the highest quality cocktails. So I started working on opening my own place um, uh, with some partners who knew the aspects of the business that I didn't know and uh, opened Flatiron Lounge in 2003. Uh, and at that time, there really wasn't a lot out there for cocktails. Um, Sasha had already opened Milk and Honey, but again, it was like nobody knew where it was. And you couldn't get in there, you know. <laughs> um, so Flatiron, you know, Flatiron was 
open to everyone. And, you know, it, it was a nice size space. So it was the kind of thing where we opened and it was just cabs pulling up all night long and people coming in. And as you know, it's like once you have a cocktail, once you have a margarita made with fresh lime juice or a daiquiri made with fresh lime juice, yeah. um, you, it, you can't turn around and go back. So, no. you know, it was we immediately were were busy overnight. Um, you know, I think some of the biggest challenges was that, you know, I was behind the bar six nights a week uh, trying to train people to do what I wanted them to do in a high volume setting because there really wasn't a lot of, um, of talent just yet. Um, and then we quickly started working on Pegu Club. Audrey Saunders was a good friend of mine at the time. And, um, you know, I felt that I, it was too soon for me to put my name on another space. So we brought Audrey in. It was the same partners as Flatiron Lounge for Pegu Club, mm -hmm. uh, which we opened in 2005. And um, yeah, so there, you know, there were certainly a lot of people that came through our doors in those early years that we trained uh, who have gone on to do incredible things in the industry. The 2000s, was a big growing period uh, here in New York that I think mm. really did influence people from all over the world. Mm. Yeah, it's it's um, each city seems to have a kind of tipping point, and I guess there may be more than one over the period of time where things change quite rapidly. And clearly, you were right there in the epicenter of that particular one in the early noughties with the bars that you were opening, and then. You know, we've seen it in London, we see it in Edinburgh, we see it in, in Greece, in Athens, we see it um, in other cities in the States as well, and all over the world now. These bars that were there in the middle of that then sort of foster the growth of bartenders that then ultimately go on to open the next generation of bars. And um, it, you know, all kind of, uh, I guess, evolves from there. Um, but it's, it's amazing that you were there kind of really at, at, at the at the epicenter of the whole thing yeah it i mean so much of my career you know it's interesting to talk to people about it but you know there they there is you know they do say it's like right time right place i was definitely the right place at the right time i could have been doing what i was doing here in new york you know in any other smaller city in the u.s and nobody would have cared but because it was new york city it's a it's global you know um so i had you know people they were writing about mm. the drinks at, at you know the at flatiron lounge in japan you know and in london and uh, so that part of it uh, being in a city like new york you know people were doing really cool things in san francisco at the time even before that but mm. it wasn't as uh, global of a city yeah that's because that's i was going to ask you about that that's interesting that you kind of took the fresh produce approach from San Francisco and took it to New York because New York was and is perceived to be, I guess, the spearhead of the American bar scene. I mean, certainly historically it was, um, but clearly at that point in time, the, the West Coast was doing something different and kind of had the advantage in that sense. Absolutely. I mean, I was having a blast in San Francisco. You know, the bar scene was fantastic um, at the time. And uh, there was, you know, it was like the, sort of like the dot-com boom was happening at that time. Mm. And so there were all these like 25-year-old millionaires in, in that area who would come into the bars and like buy around for the entire bar and be throwing hundred dollar bills at the bartenders. It was a great time to be a bartender in San Francisco. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think, you know, San Francisco is very much a, a farm to table or California in general, you know, a lot of fresh citrus, yeah. um, the farm to table restaurant kind of thing. You know, there are a lot of great restaurants uh, at that time in San Francisco and California in general. Um, but it was very much ahead of New York, mm. you know. And also, I think the chefs in San Francisco at that time supported the bar a lot more than the chefs in New York did, you know, at least in my, what my experience was. Um, you know, a lot of the chefs in New York City were very much, you know, I'm the star and, mm. you know, they don't they didn't want any sort of you know, sort of bar celebrity happening. I mean, I got fired because the chef and the bar and the restaurant manager like went to the owner and were like, she's going to open her own bar and steal all your clientele. Um, but it was so much of that was just like, 
it was like a pity party of like, oh, poor me, I'm supposed to be the star, I'm the chef, you know, and they're writing about the drinks because the drinks were more groundbreaking than what you were doing in the kitchen, you know? Yeah. Sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Funny, I had a similar experience at a restaurant early on in my career, actually, where, um, yeah, the chef got his back up a little bit because the drinks were getting quite a lot of attention. But um, I wonder if that's, uh, that, that, that's maybe a... Um, your symptom of New York, maybe was it sort of a bit too entrenched in like older values, uh, whereas California is a bit more forward thinking at the time. Is that would that be a sum summary of it? Absolutely. And also, you know, San Francisco, they used to call it the home of the two star restaurant. You know, there were a lot of really great restaurants that weren't like fine dining, you know, but, you know, a, a lot of really good food coming out of San Francisco at that time. Um, and yeah, New York is, uh, you know, yeah, there's a lot of history and a lot of these restaurants are, you know, it's big money and big names and, you know, they... It, t it took time uh, for them to embrace and realize that, you know, this is just another area that we can generate press and generate yeah. interesting, cool things for people to imbibe, you know. Um, why wouldn't you want, you know, the best beverage to go with your incredible food, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. You mentioned um, milk and honey. Um, are there any other bars from that era that you would kind of give props to for being you know really influential at the time whether in new york or or, or elsewhere in, in the country in that sort of early noughties or mid noughties period um yeah i mean audrey was at a few different spots that obviously you know she was really doing some cool things um you know before she was at bevelman's she was at a place called beacon um and you know, that's where she started with doing the Gin Gin Mule and the Jamaican Firefly and all of these drinks that have become, you know, modern classics. Mm. Um, Jerry Banks was a pretty influential American bartender, also a woman uh, who ran a couple different bars here in New York, was also doing more, taking a more culinary approach to drinks. Uh, the Juniperativo was one of her cocktails that was awesome. And where, where do you think New York's at now with its sort of cocktail culture? Is it just kind of a mashup of everything? Like you've got the kind of provenance type bars where it's seasonality. You've got the classic bars. You've got, I don't know, the forward thinking modernist bars. Is it just a bit of everything or is there a kind of theme to the way the city is at the moment? I think it is a bit of everything. I think we've finally gotten to this place where it's sort of like, what style of bar do you want to have? You know, are you are you doing, you know, is every, are you making milk punch and clarifying everything mm. and putting spheres on things and you know, it's like molecular, whatever. Um, and then there's just other bars that are just fun that are don't take it too seriously, but they just want to have a good time. And, yeah. you know, but there's there's a little something for everyone uh, here now. And, and I think that it's as long as you're owning what style of bar you're running, people are into it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Lani Kai, um, which is a bar that I never got to go to, unfortunately. Um, uh, so, as some, I mean, I've closed my fair share of bars over the years. Um, <laughs> sometimes I joke that I've closed more than I've opened. <laughs> but um, I've certainly closed a few. Um, <laughs> but uh, so tell me about your experiences that because um, my understanding was that it's inspired by your upbringing and Hawaiian culture or maybe some of the Hawaiian culture that gets lost, uh, you know, amongst the kind of the, um, what would you say, the kind of glam and glitz of, of Hawaii as, 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 as it's exported as a, as a culture. Yeah. Um, so tell me a bit about the bar and, um, and how, what the experience was like of opening it and, and then subsequently closing it. Yeah, I mean, Lani Kai was a, it was supposed to be a very modern tropical, you know, rum focused bar. Um, I wanted to do something that was not kitsch tiki you know, um, that was sort of more designed like the hotels, like elegant tropical hotels of Hawaii, you know, like you see on White Lotus and that kind of stuff, you know, tropical elements, but very classy. Yeah, I love that program. You know, oh, so good. Um, but yeah, I mean, and that is really what a lot of these like really beautiful hotels in, in Hawaii are, are designed like and, you know, lots of capis, chandeliers and, you know, really beautiful stuff. Um, and so that was that was the concept for it. 
I, you know, it was, it was a lot of lessons learned. I'm sure you would agree that the ones that are the hardest are the ones that are the, the you've learned the most from, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, it was, I had signed a, a, like a three bar deal with the original investor of Clover Club who, uh, once we opened Clover Club was just like, oh, we have to do bar number two and here's this space. And, you know, I walked into the space that he thought was great. And, you know, my first instinct was that it was too big and that it was a weird location. And so, you know, that was my and, and ultimately I should have listened to my my gut instinct. Uh, because it ended up being yeah. too big in a weird location. It's like on the edge of Soho, but not really Soho. You know, <laughs> it's like on the way to the Holland Tunnel. Um, and so it was just kind of a, it, people had a hard time finding it. Um, it was a restaurant space on the top floor and then the bar was down below. And, you know, ultimately New Yorkers did not understand tropical if it wasn't tiki. You know, mm. like they want to drink out of a coconut. Uh, you know, they understand the Trader Vic, you know, style of Americanized uh, kitsch tropic stuff. But they really just didn't entirely get it. That was mm. when so I started doing Tiki Mondays with Brian Miller early on because he was sort of lost and didn't know where he was going. And that was like the most successful thing we did in that space because... It was tiki, and that's what the people wanted. Yeah. Um, you know, and there was a lot of discourse between the partner, and you know, it was it was a tough it was a tough space. The bar was very successful, really hard to fill that fill the restaurant space upstairs. Um, it was kind of disjointed because of the two levels, uh, and ultimately, you know, it was open for two years, and you know, we broke even on it, and that was it. You know, um, but kind of decided that we. We didn't want to work with this person anymore and and vice versa. Um, and so we, we just shut it down and went our separate mm. ways. It's remarkable, isn't it, how the location... It was a great bar, though. Yeah, <laughs> right. I know. I've heard. It's remarkable how the the location... We know it's important, but it's it can, can be so subtle how, you know, one, one location compared to another. It could be like four doors down or half a block away... And it completely changes how successful the venue is. Uh-huh. And it's it's strange. Like, we don't think about it enough. I mean, I don't anyway. Probably why I've closed so many bars. But <laughs> don't think about it enough. Like, how you know, the, the movements of human beings around cities, the way they interact, and especially, like, the demographic you're expecting to attract to your venue, how they move, where they are going from, where they are going to, you know, where you know, where they pick a taxi from, all these, or a bus or, or, or a tube or whatever, all these little things factor into the sort of heat map of your potential customer. And if you get it slightly wrong, like it's, you, you get half the revenue, you know, <laughs> and then your business doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. Then that, that was what it was, you know, but, and, and I, again, you know, didn't listen to my, my instinct and got kind of bullied into doing it because it's like, oh, well, we have to do this other, you know, there were dollar signs in his eyes of, you know, the, oh, let's, the bigger it is, the better. Had we done that in a smaller space, it very well could still be open, you know? It was just, the it was the wrong location completely. Um, and it was mm. too, too, too food-driven, food you know? My name is synonymous with mm. cocktails. Yeah. And while, you know, our bars have really great food, um, you know, it took it took years for Clover Club to get to a point where people would walk in and say two for dinner, you know, and we're there. People know in the neighborhood now that Clover has really great food, but it took time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think sometimes I mean, I, I only ask this because I, I think I've probably been guilty of it. Do you think sometimes it's possible to get caught up in the ambition of a venue and then lose track of, you know, the sort of realistic outcome of how this is going to go. You think, well, ah, if we do food, we could be doing like 200 covers a night and we could have amazing food and it could be great. So let's probably just go with that, even though realistically, like food might not be the best option because you're not famous for food. Um, you're not going to get enough people there anyway. So why employ a team of half a you know, dozen chefs 
And also the margins on food aren't great anyway by the time you kind of factor in the staff costs. Exactly. <laughs> Correct. Um, yeah, I, it's, you know, uh, ideally, you know, I mean, yeah, at, at Clover, you know, we are, and, and Leando, we do a ton of food at both of those venues and we have really great talented people in the kitchen. But yeah, yeah Lonnie Kai just never, it, it, it never took off in that in that way. And it's very, you know, rent in that space was enormous. The rent was just, you can't not Mm. have food that, that works for it. You know, there were, there were quite a few things, but Mm. ultimately location, location, location. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. There's a reason that they say that, you know? Yeah. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right. Like it could be, it's like literally like two blocks in the opposite direction, uh, you know, would have been fine but it's yeah. just a weird spot yeah yeah um and and i do I, you know, i'm not because cocktail bars can do great food and like you say with clover club it's happened and it sounds like that's that sort of developed over the years right you've kind of upped the food offering over time to the point now where people are coming in to eat yeah specifically. yeah i mean when we opened clover it was very much a lot like we you know the Pegu. We were like, okay, well, we had like a consulting chef and it was an eight to 10 item menu and it was a bar, you know? And then we realized very quickly that the clientele and the people in Brooklyn, you know, they wanted to sit and be comfortable and they wanted to eat. And we, we, you know, adjusted, you know, you have to listen to the neighborhood and the people who are coming in, what do they want? If you don't edit your concepts to fit the guests that you are serving, then you lose ultimately, you know? Um, so we hired a chef. We started doing brunch immediately because we were like, people in Brooklyn are out on Saturday and Sunday afternoon. They want a day drink and have some delicious brunch. So we, we launched that service, which to this day is one of my best, my favorite times at Clover Club afternoon on a Sunday. It's great. Um, and, you know, expanded our our menu and started doing more dinner items we do catering for parties you know it's a lot of food you know we started out probably 80 20 food to beverage you know and and are now probably more 35 percent you know 60 40 somewhere around there Mm. food to beverage which is great nice nice so i don't know how you find time for this stuff because and people say this to me but you are running a bunch of bars, you're judging loads of spirits and cocktail competitions. You're obviously on TV quite a lot now as well, which we'll get to in a bit. I want to I hear about your experiences on drink classes. But <laughs> also you're a mentor to a, mentor to a lot of people as well, um, whether, whether you know it or not. Some of them directly and then a lot more probably indirectly who look up to you um, for your experience in, in the industry and your knowledge as well. So talk to me a little bit about mentorship. How important do you think that is um, for the next generation of bartenders? I think it's huge. Uh, you know, I think learning from people who have come before you and who have done, you know, done the things in the industry uh, is the best way to, to learn. Um, you know, that being said, like you have to do the work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there's, there's no shortcut to that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it, which I feel like a lot of the younger generation, they want to, you know, leapfrog from here to there. Um, but you, you know, that yeah, do the work people, <laughs> which is what I, you know, what I tell them, you learn from working in different style bars and doing different things. Um, so, you know, most of the people that I directly mentor are, are those that work within our bars. Mm, yeah. And they're the ones that I that I try to, you know, focus my energy on. Mm. I think that's great advice. Do the work. Um, it's it, The thing is, information is so available to us now and instant that we have that access to see, oh, right, well, that's going on there 3,000 miles away. That person's doing that. 3,000 miles in the opposite direction. I want to be that. And I've seen that that person's done that. So why can't I, you know, leapfrog, as you put it, um, or accelerate my career in that way? And, of course, some people are lucky um, and that, you know, things kind of fall in front of them and they do seem to move up the ranks very rapidly and perhaps they, you know, have skills that they've either innate to them or that they've learned very quickly and picked up fast. But for the most part, for most of us normal people, 
you've just got graft, right? And you've got to you've got to got to learn a number of different skills across the industry. You need to be, you know, you need to be good at accounting. You need to be good at cocktail history. You need to understand flavor and ingredients and balancing. You need to be pretty good with a mop and a broom, right? <laughs> you need to have so yes. many of these different dif- different skill sets because that shows to employers, um, it shows you know to potential investors or business partners or whatever it might be that you've got that grit and determination. And I, I always think, you know, the, the the more more enthusiastic and encouraged you can be in your current role, whatever that might be the more lucky things will fall onto your lap. And it's not luck, of course. It is actually the fact that you've put yourself in the right place and you've worked hard. Yeah, I'm, that is that is absolutely what it is. Um, yeah, I mean, for those of us, you know, when, when I was coming up, there, there really, there, there was no social media you know i there i couldn't you know it was like finding books about bartending didn't really exist you know it was like dale degroff walked into c3 lounge and i didn't know who he was you know um you know so i now people have access to so much information and you can really teach yourself a lot uh on the internet um but that does not replace actual experience you know you can learn a lot about history you can learn you can watch the seminars at every cocktail thing you know from you know germany to london to new orleans um and you can certainly gain a great deal of knowledge but actually working and putting in the time and the hours behind a bar or on the floor you know running a, a bar learning about pnls and numbers and you know all of that stuff you're only going to get that experience by by working and spending the the time. Um, so yeah, I there I, I feel like there's you know everybody's a consultant now whether they should be or not you know, um, which yeah. just muddies the the playing field a lot you know. So like there's people out there who I'm like wait you're the you know you're the consultant wait what did you what is yeah. your resume <laughs> again you know yeah. It's potentially a bit of a treacherous period in the kind of evolution of the bartending craft and and the respect that it gets um, from from the wider public because it's earned that respect um, slowly um, or regained that respect slowly I should say because of course bartenders were highly respected back in the early 20th century. Um, regained it slowly, and now that we've, thanks to you, you know, uh, gone beyond uh, sour mix, and we're, you know, we're using trusted ingredients, and we have some understanding of the cocktails we're putting together. We have a, we place value in hospitality, and yeah, there's a danger that you now have, um, you know, underqualified consultants that are, you know, advising people, operators, investors, people with money. And subsequently, you know, creating creating bars and concepts that, that will be judged by the public that, you know, are underqualified for it because they've gone through this sort of self acceleration process in the in the career in their career, and assigned themselves as a consultant. When, I mean, you know, I, I I'm I'm 25 years into the industry now, and I'm still not entirely sure I'm qualified to be a bar consultant. There's mistakes I still make in my own venues, and. Um, you know, I'm sure I'll continue to do that. So, uh, you know, is it is it really can anyone who hasn't opened a number of bars and preferably with their own money, um, yes. you, you know, really call themselves a consultant? <laughs> yeah, I mean, having some skin in the game changes everything. You know, um, yeah. you know, I've I've worked, a bit, yeah. You know, yeah, suddenly suddenly it's a little scarier when you're playing with your own money and not somebody else's. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I've, I've worked with some bartenders who are, you know, like they're great with cocktail creation or, you know, they're super into molecular stuff and they want to do all these things, but then they have no interpersonal communication skills, you know, <laughs> just like, you, you know, that, yeah. I, I'm like, I, you can't only have the one thing, you know, you've, you've got to be able to work with a team of people and how do you inspire a group of people, but then also run a profitable business. Um, you know, there are a lot of things, 
I would love to have like the nicest glassware and, you know, I know people come in and they're like, oh, this is a Julie Reiner cocktail or, you know, and it has to be in the most beautiful glass ever. But you know what, if I used those glasses, then we would not have any profits at the end of the day. So, you know, (laughs) I I may not, you know, I I mean, and, and I have, you know, that was, I have been involved in, in bars that have had those kind of issues where it was more about, you know, the, the reputation of, of the face than it is about running a profitable space. Um, and those bars close, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. because they yeah. there's only so long you, your investors are going to wait to make their money back. So there, you, there is a, you got to find that, that middle ground, um, and work in all of these different areas, uh, not just the creative side to understand how bars really really work yeah that's good advice is i mean is there any other advice you'd give to someone who perhaps is you know one to five years into the industry pretty hungry um looking you know taking all the kind of knowledge perhaps they're listening to this podcast well i hope they are because otherwise there's no point in you giving the advice but (laughs) that's uh, someone who's really kind of trying to digest all of that information um and they're you know they're seeing the success of others around them what would you what would you say to them in order to sort of assist them in you know getting to where they want to be in a timely manner um in but in the right way as well uh, yeah i think looking at bars from all angles you know i mean i always talk about like the team of people that you work with you know um partner with people who know the aspects of the business that you don't don't partner with another bartender, you know, Um, if you're a creative, you know, if you're a front of the house creative person, partner with people who really know the financials, but learn the financials. Like, you know, that's so many, so often people, Mm. you know, who are creative types are like, oh, you know, they're so busy doing their menus and doing PR and they have no idea what's actually happening to the money when it comes into the place and then goes back out, you know, um, taking, take a business course, do things that maybe, you know, you might not love being a manager on the floor, but you should do it, you know, so that you learn what that side of, of the business is about. There's, you know, there's no glory on the floor. You're, when you're behind the bar, you're controlling the flow of alcohol in the room. And so you are just given, you know, this pedestal and your respect. Uh, oftentimes the server on the floor who's serving the drink that you just made is not getting that same respect, nor is the manager or the owner for that matter, because they're on the floor. Um, but none yeah. of these, none of this works without those, those people. Um, so, you know, spending, spending some time in the office, learning how to do payroll. There's a lot of boring stuff, <laughs> you know, and I'm lucky there enough to is, have yeah. uh, Susan Fedroff, Christine Williams, you know, it's like it, the three of us are like, you know, the witches of Smith Street. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we all handle very, we handle very different aspects of the business. And then we meet multiple times a week and sort of fill each other in on what's going on, you know? Mm. Oh, you know, we need to lower the payroll for this part of the business or, you know, Christine will be like, these are really expensive. Maybe we should switch it to something else. Um, so, you know, working, working with, with people who, who have skill sets that are not your strength, um, and then really trying to sponge as much of that information as you can. Yeah. That's great advice. If you're, I would say, if you're looking to open your own venue, um, or if you're just trying to put together a team for a venue, you should be looking to diversify the skill sets within those individuals. Like, you don't want to set up a bar with three business partners because all four of you are super into making like molecular cocktails. Um, but none of you know anything about payroll or accountancy or PR or marketing or interior design or plumbing or carpentry or any of this kind of stuff because you've got that one is very important. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're going to fall, fall foul to, to a lack of skill and it doesn't matter how great your drinks taste if your plumbing's leaking 
and you you don't you don't know how to use social media properly of course everyone thinks they know how to use social media properly these days but you know what i mean like it's you you need you need that diversity of skill and you need you effectively need need one of your partners to be an accountant right ideally yes or your wife <laughs> <laughs> or your wife <laughs> yeah even better even yes. better i i know exactly what's going on but i mean the other thing too that you know it's like if you don't know how to read a pnl you know it's it's interesting because I, so <clears throat> ivy mix is my partner at landa you know and we're both creative types and we deal with a lot a lot of social media pr marketing you know but we'll sit in a meeting and susan and christine will be like, okay, well, here's the PL and talk us through it and, you know, explain the aspects and things that, that need help um, in, a way, in a way that we can understand, you know, because we're not the math people. Yeah. Um, so having those people that are patient and will sit down with you and explain how things are working. And you want you want to have people on that side that you trust as well. Yes. Right? That, you know you can easily lose your shirt if, if the people who are controlling the bank accounts um, are not transparent with you. Yes, uh, this is cutting close to the bone from some of my past experiences, so we'll leave it there because otherwise we'll end, I'll end up <laughs> airing dirty laundry on this podcast. Um, so, um, but, but also what I was going to say was like an, an inadequacy in skill set is also an opportunity, right? So you can say, oh my God, we don't know the first thing about um interior design let's say like we know what we we know what the way we like things to look but we don't really know what we're doing well look use it as an opportunity all right think well let's go visit half a dozen bars that we really like and see what they're doing take notes you know look at how they're doing lighting look at how many lights they've got look at you know the layout of the bar the setup you know is there enough space there you know where they put the fridges you know, do the customers have enough space? What's the entrance like? How are people greeted? Is there enough room for movement? Where are the coats being hung? All that kind of stuff. And use it as an opportunity to learn and develop your own skills. And then suddenly you might find you're a bit of an expert on that subject. Absolutely. Studying other people and, you know, what what have they done well? What have they not done well? You know, I think that is absolutely, you, got, you have to do that, if, especially if you're looking to open a, a space of your own. What's the bar height? You know, yeah. is there enough knee room? Yeah, it's, it's one of the good things about our industry as well is that it's really easy to do market research, right? You can just walk into another venue and go, right, cool. How are these guys doing it? Um, what, are the, what are their, you know, if it's, maybe it's a cocktail thing. What, what, what a glassware are they using? What do their drinks taste like? You know, how much are they charging for them? It's so easy to do market research because the whole product is right there for you to see. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you're if you're able to travel, you know, obviously traveling to other cities, I think, is a is is key. Uh, Oftentimes things get very kind of incestuous uh, in in a city where, Mm. you know, that very much happened kind of here in New York, where it was sort of like that early kind of group of people. It was sort of Sasha, Audrey and myself and people worked with us, you know, and then they would go on and then they would teach people and everybody sort of was bartending the same and kind of everything looked very much the same in New York. Um, and then, you know, Jack McGarry came to town. For me, it was like going to London and I was just completely blown away at the hotel bars in London and just, you know, the style of bartending and, you know, the hmm. traveling to other cities, I think is key to, to really kind of getting a big, the big picture of the global you know, drinks world, um, and, and how it differs in, in different cities. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in New York, it wasn't until Jack McGarry kind of came to town and they were opening the dead rabbit. And I went and sat at his bar and I was just like watching him bartend was so beautiful because it was a totally different style and look, uh, than we had here in New York. And I think it was, that was a very pivotal sort of time where people were like, Oh, you know, we can do things in a different sort of way. And then it was like a new arm was launched in New York City at that time. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about Drinks Masters. So I confess I haven't actually seen much of it, just a few clips. I haven't watched the whole, I haven't binged the series yet. Um, so for me, as much as anyone, can you describe a little bit about the show? It's Netflix. Is it Netflix? Yeah. It is Netflix. Yes. Yeah. So it's a it's a cocktail competition reality show. 
um, that, you know, pits bartenders against one another was um, uh, 10 episodes, you know, with different challenges on each episode. Um, the host, Tone Bell, uh, who's a, a comedian and actor, but also a drink enthusiast who has a really great palate. Uh, and uh, Frankie Solaric, who has a bar in Toronto, Canada, um, called Bar Chef, that is very much, you know, he is all about molecular mixology. And, you know, you go into his bar and you order, you know, a, a pina colada and there's, you're basically getting a giant piece of artwork that's set down in front of you that tells you the story of the pina colada, you know, <laughs> and if there's a dessert and there's coconut and there's flowers and, you know, um, so th that was his side of things. And I'm kind of like the anti that, you know, because I started out and all of my bars are more classically focused. Yeah. They're about people being together. They're about conversation and, oh, this drink is amazing. Right. But First and foremost, their atmosphere, lighting, music, and people. Um, so, you know, the two of us kind of come from very different backgrounds. Um, but yeah, yeah, there were, you know, different challenges every every episode. It was a lot of fun. And then somebody got voted off at, uh, at the end of each episode. And we got down to one final winner uh, who won $100,000. Yeah. Are the bartenders on the show um, familiar faces in the American bar scene or are they relative unknowns? Uh, some, some of both. Yeah. I, I didn't know. I knew of a couple people who were on the show. Um, Kate Gerwin, I had met in the past. She's been in the industry a long time. Um, LP, Lauren Paler, uh, I had seen at Speed Rack. Uh, there was a, a Vegas bartender, Alex, who I had also seen and judged in a competition previously. Uh, and then quite a few unknowns. And then there was even one uh, Instagram influencer person who, you know, who had a, um, who has an Instagram page called beautiful booze, you know? And so she was a part of that as well. Right, okay. It was, it was interesting. It was a, it was an interesting group nice. of, of people, but yeah, mostly working bartenders all from North America. I, I don't want to put you on the spot. You say you weren't sure if you're going to, wasn't sure if you're going to do it. Are you glad you did do it? I am. Uh, you know, I mean, in the past I had been very much like anything reality oriented where people would come to me. I was like, no, I wouldn't even have the conversation, you know, um, or even like, we want to film this thing and had these people in your bar. I was like, no way. You don't want any like housewives, like flipping of tables and things like that. <laughs> you know, you never know what's with reality TV, right? Like what's going to happen. Um, so I had really just said no to all of those sort of opportunities in the past. Um, but they reached out to me um, during the lockdown and, you know, I was sitting at a table at the front of Clover Club serving people bottled cocktails, uh, and in an empty space. So I was like, I guess I should have at least have the conversations, you know, yeah. be open to other things. Cause we might, I was like, cause we might not have a business, uh, if people can no longer be in the same room with each other. And so I started talking to them and, you know, you know me, Tristan, I just say what I think. Uh, I'm kind of unapologetic about it. Uh, but I'm brutally honest and kind of like, this is what it is. Uh, it turns out that's what they wanted. <laughs> um, so yeah, they, I, you know, when, when they called me up and makes good TV. Yeah. I, I kind of notoriously don't really have much of a filter, um, which does seem to make good TV. Uh, and I'm not an actor. I was like, listen, this is what you're going to get. I'm going to tell you exactly <laughs> what I think. Um, uh, and yeah, so they asked me to do it and I was like, oh, I don't know. I still wasn't sure even when they asked me to do it. Um, but ultimately decided, uh, you know, after talking to them and hearing about, you know, the, the thought behind a, a lot of the challenges and, you know, I, I had a lot of questions for them before I said yes. Um, and the integrity of the producers and, you know, who's doing the drinks in the back of the house and how, you know, how is all of this going to work? Uh, and they really did do a lot of research and talk to a lot of consultants and people in our industry to make sure that it was done properly. Um, and, it, you know, it was long hours for sure, um, but it was a really fun and cool experience. And, yeah, I would absolutely do another season if they asked. We'll see.
Hmm. How long did it take to film the whole thing? Uh, five weeks. It was filmed in just outside of Toronto. Whoa. In Canada. Yeah. So and it, and you know it was yeah, because lot. of because of uh, the the lockdown. It was I, you know once I went there, I had to stay there the whole time. You know there was no traveling home. Um, yeah. During that time. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a lot. It was a commitment of time and being away from your family. And, you know, so it was a, it was a big decision, but I'm really happy with how it turned out. And, you know, there are certainly things that, you know, I hope that we do a season two because there were things that we couldn't do because of um, this, you know, the health situation uh, around the world. Yeah. And, um you know, so I, I would love to have an opportunity to do more hospitality challenges where there's a larger group of people. You know, we were supposed to have more guest judges that we were ultimately not able to have. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there's there are so many challenges that I feel like are they're in my head of, oh, we could we could do so many different things uh, now that we can have larger groups. That That's an aspect of cocktail competitions that... I think is often missing, isn't it? Well, usually missing is the the hosting and hospitality side of it. And we've seen it with competitions like World Class where they've tried to sort of bring some more of that actual bar environment into into the competition. But I mean, most of the time, these these things are based around like, what does the drink smell like? What does the drink taste like? What does it look like? And was the bartender yeah. professional, you know? And that's kind of it, isn't it? Yeah. How good how good of a public speaker are you? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a totally different skill set, you know? Yeah. These, yeah. You know, as yeah. you know very well, competition bartenders, you know, if you're not a dynamic public speaker, you're probably not going to win, mm. you know? So there's a combination of um, skills that people have to have to, to win a, a circuit like that. Yeah, for sure. So... Uh, what is next for you? Uh, apart from, I hope, a season two of uh, Drinks Masters, um, are you, I, I'm guessing you're not behind the bar too much, but are you going to be opening any more bars or any kind of new projects, consultancy stuff going on? Uh, right now, I'm really focusing on running the bars. I mean, Miladies, we open Miladies in October. Uh, so it, it's a return to New York City, to Manhattan for me. You know, um, we closed Pegu during the during the lockdown. Uh, so I'm really focusing on Miladies and doing some cool, fun parties and things there. Um, you know, ultimately, I like spending my days going to Clover, going to Leyenda, going to Miladies, like, you know, talking to, the, our, to our staff and um, just trying to just focusing on running our, our own thing, which is what ultimately what I makes me the happiest. You know, I don't, I, I'd, I'd like to pick and choose the consulting that I do or the travel that I do and not have that be the number one, you know, thing for me. I love the day-to-day -day running of the bars and problem solving and working with the amazing teams that we've uh, put together. And, you know, that for me is the most fulfilling um, thing. Um, but I don't have any, there's nothing, you know, no new bars in the, you know, near future as Miladies is only like a few months old. <laughs> yeah, we've not talked about Miladies. Um, so give us a brief rundown on what, what that's all about. Yeah, so, well, this was a, a Miladies was a, a dive bar. It was this awesome dive bar on the corner of Prince and Thompson. It was open for 70 years. Um, and it was a dive. It was a total hole. Like they had a stand-up refrigerator, like a kitchen refrigerator at the end of the bar. You know, <laughs> it was notorious. You, know, you just went there at the end of the night. But the coolest part about it was like you'd walk in and there would be, you know, local Italian guys from the neighborhood, you know, and then, you know, some NYU college students and then a couple that are dressed in black tie who were going to, you know, Lincoln Center for something. So it's just like this crisscross of, <laughs> Love it. you know, it was just a cool space. So I used to bartend in Soho and I would go there at the end of the night and have a whiskey and a beer or something. And it just, you know, I'm a firm believer that spaces have a soul to them and a vibe. And that was just one of those spaces in New York City that was really special and had a lot of energy. Um, so it, it closed in 2014 and then became an Italian restaurant. Um, and during 
the shutdown, I was teaching a lot of cocktail classes on Zoom, as I'm sure as a lot of people were, <laughs> sending people my book and ingredients. Uh, and one of the people that I was teaching, uh, I had a drink with as we were kind of coming out of it. And, and she was like, oh, you know, I have this connection to this, you know, building and do you know the space that used to be called Milady's? And I was one of those, like, the record, like, sk- I was like, eh. I was like, I know that space. <laughs> and that is something I would absolutely be interested in seeing. I was not looking to open anything, um, you know, but it, when the right thing falls in your lap, you know, I went and looked at that space. It's just like this incredible corner with the windows, you know, it's very iconic block of Soho. Uh, again, location is incredible. Um, yeah. And, you know, she that she then asked me, well, how much would it cost to open a bar like that? And she put together an investor group of the women who were taking my Zoom classes during the shutdown. Um, no way. Oh, yeah. The, so our my investor group, are, I had been teaching them cocktail classes for over a year so i've been in their living room in their kitchen talking about gin drinks and whiskey and they were they were excited to be a part of it you know um so i was like here this amazing space and here's the money to do it that's amazing yeah i was i rode a bike i was riding a city bike home and you know i was thinking to myself i was like i don't know if i want to work this hard (laughs) (laughs) do i really want to open another bar openings are really hard i was like i could just say nothing and it'll all go away (laughs) um but of course you know the minute i the minute i sat down with susan and christine i was like so (laughs) there's this you know and the rest is history well that's amazing let that be a lesson so take every zoom call cocktail masterclass you can because you just don't know if the next one is going to be your kind of cohort of investors. Um, that's amazing. So t- t- is the bar, have you kept any of the kind of dive bar aspects to it? Because I have to admit, I have a strong fondness for an American dive bar. Um, I do love them dearly. Yes. Well, un- unfortunately, uh, they the Italian restaurant that went into that space after Milady's closed, they gutted the whole thing and redesigned the whole space. So there wasn't oh, any... Oh, stripped it all out. Yeah, so there wasn't anything for us mm-hmm. to save. But what we did do was we, you know, a friend of mine who was a designer helped us to, to reimagine the space. And we put the bar and the sort of the seating elements are exactly the same. Uh, as far as the location of those things, but it's got its own sort of much more, you know, it's a newer design, you know, but the menu has like dive and high dive or the two sides of the menu. So, you know, there are a lot of like, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Like food things and, and cocktails, you know, potato skins and chicken fingers and smash burgers and the things that you would have found on the Milady's menu um, are there. And then on the opposite side, high dive is more your, you know, caviar dip and, you know, they're, they're much more, uh, you know, elevated new bar options on, on the opposite side. Yeah. Yeah. A delicious veggie burger, you know. <laughs> nice. And then drinks wise, is it classic cocktails? Uh, it's it, some throwbacks, uh, but then a lot of sort of more kind of modern stuff as well. Uh, it's a it's it's a, a mishmash. You know, we have the Joe the Bug old fashioned. It was Milady's is also a, a, a like a mafia hangout <laughs> back then, um, and so you know we we. Mm tried to find some some fun things joe the bug was one of the guys that hung out there so we named an old-fashioned after him uh, we've got like a throwback to uh, the 90s apple martini nice. uh, that looks like an apple pucker martini but isn't <laughs> so yeah we're having fun uh, you know ultimately i wanted this just to be a really fun bar um that didn't take itself too seriously and just is it's a cool spot that people can come hang out in soho has a lot of very schmancy places that you need reservations and all of that and i wanted my ladies to go back to that you know you can just walk in and have a drink yeah it's important i think isn't it and i do feel like we're moving in that direction generally as an industry having you know, a little bit less stuffiness. Um, it almost like there's a new wave of bars coming in that are like the antidote to that reservation only, you know, you, you've got to do everything on our terms kind of operation where it's like, look, this is just a bar, come in and have fun. 
Yeah. That's like, I mean, you know, it's there's Long Island bar in Brooklyn is like that, you know, it, I wanted, I wanted to, to sort of get that fun kind of vibe that Long Island bar and Katana have, you know, and where you just can, they're just fun spots. The music is great. Is that Toby's can, place, Long Island? Yeah. Toby Cicchini's spot. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. It's a bunch of like mm-hmm. curmudgeon-y bartenders. Phil Ward is still behind the bar there. KJ Williams. Like these guys have been behind the stick for yeah. a long time and you can go in there and you know, it, it's just not a lot of frills, but you'll have an awesome time. And that's what Milady's was for me, you know, in the late nineties. And it's what I want it to be for the next generation uh, who didn't get a chance to go there. Uh, so it is very much a Milady's 2.0, and we get a lot of people coming in who are like, I used to come here, you know. It's been really fun for me because they all, the people who used to go to Milady's, they come in and they have this same sort of happy, like, vibe to the space that I remembered. Um, and, you know, that's, I just, I just want to continue that on that corner in Soho. Great. It's lovely. It's like almost a sort of tribute to, to your your past experiences in New York. I love it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we have to get you there, Tristan. Julie, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been so much fun chatting. Yes. Um, I've very much enjoyed it here. I mean, we know each other, but I've learned so much about some of the stuff you've done and, um, and uh, your experiences in the, in the industry. Um, it's, it's, you're, you are a font of um, knowledge and experience for all of us. So we're very grateful to have you on. Thank you so much, Tristan. It's so, so great to catch up with you. If you haven't already, make sure you become a Diageo Bar Academy member. It's free. Head over to diageobaracademy.com for the latest industry news, events and inspiration. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bar Chat Podcast. If you liked it, make sure you share it through your social media and also subscribe and rate it. And if you like, leave us a review. Thanks. Thanks.